So we've got to the condition of craving. Now, I have already mentioned that in the Buddha's Enlightenment statement of the Four Noble Truths, he said that the first noble truth is that there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and that there's only one cause for that, and that's craving, wanting, which also means, of course, wanting to get rid of. So it is a basic, basic underlying factor of whatever ails us. And usually craving is divided into three parts. But here, in this um, particular explanation, it's divided into four parts. But basically, we wind up with just two. The four parts are that there's craving for sense objects to get things or to get people. And then the craving for the pleasure of the senses to have it nice, get nice feelings. And then the craving for existence and the craving for non-existence. Now the craving for existence and the craving for non-existence is basically the same thing. It's based on the fact I like it here or I don't like it here. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. So there is no uh, insight involved in having this, either the craving for existence or non-existence. But the craving for existence, obviously, would like to make us permanent, immortal. And we have tried in every which way to manage that. We try and think that maybe we can become immortal because we have children and grandchildren. Or we try because we are famous and then they can put up a statue. Or we write books and then people will read them. Or, as I said before, we get a place in paradise. So that's that craving for existence. And obviously none of that uh, has any real bearing on our being. And the craving for non-existence is this annihilation which sometimes expresses itself in suicidal thoughts and uh, sometimes actually expresses itself in suicide. So this non-existence also expresses itself in very hateful thoughts and feelings against oneself and uh, which then, of course, translates into hateful thoughts and feelings against others or against the whole world. Or if one doesn't realize what one is doing, one justifies those hateful thoughts and feelings because there's obviously something wrong with this world. Otherwise, everybody would be absolutely delightfully happy. So we have a reason for hating everything, but, I mean, it doesn't make sense anyway because the hate which we then have only makes the world worse. It adds to the negativities in the world, and it certainly doesn't make anybody happy. So we have these four cravings, which we could translate into two, because the sense objects are being craved for because they promise sense pleasure. <coughs> but we can also divide it up into the object and the pleasures. And the craving for existence is based on the wrong idea of that there's somebody there who's going to stick around forever, and 
the same thing on the non-existence, there's somebody there that doesn't like it here. So we could have it <coughs> divided up into two or four, whichever we like. But these are the basic cravings, and out of them arises everything else. Now, if we could use this information in order to find out what's really going on within us, we'd soon find that everything boils down to one of those four. And then we might even find that we could dismiss a lot of the thoughts and a lot of the uh, desires and a lot of the activities that try to get the sense pleasures or the sense objects or try to make our existence more secure and permanent. It's totally insecure and it's totally impermanent. And whatever we do will never change it. So when we see that everything that we're doing is based on those underlying factors, we might find that we could actually flow a little better with impermanence and have everything much easier. Another way of contemplation and investigation. Contemplation and investigation are synonymous. We take one subject, not discursive thinking, but just one subject. Let's say sense objects and sense pleasures, which are the same object, and investigate. Why do I want them? Do I want them? What am I doing about it? What is it? that really happens when I get them. There's more about this in here. Now, with sensual pleasure, initially, something that is enjoyed and becomes a sort of an important aspect, we get habituated to craving for it. So the sense pleasure that we find important makes us cling and when we cling we crave because whatever we are really attached to that's what we want to have and to keep so our sensual pleasures which are not being denied and I have to repeat this I think many times because people do misunderstand this in a very important way that it is being denied by the Buddha that there are sense pleasures. It's not denied by him at all. It would be foolishness to deny a fact. And the Buddha was a realist and a pragmatist and never denied facts. He wanted us to look at the facts. And the last step of insight before we can actually change ourselves is called the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. So he's not denying that there are sense pleasures. And we all have them because we have made relatively good karma. And we have probably quite a number of them. We get decent food. We have it warm when it's cold. And we have it cool when it's hot. We've got clothing that keeps us... Um, covered, we have nice friends, we have a home, we have sense pleasures, 
one of the things that is wrong with us, though, is that we take all the things I have just mentioned for granted, as if it was completely and utterly our birthright. Actually, it's depending on the karma we're making and continue to make. We should never take those things for granted. But they're ours, we have them. So we have made good karma, and all of these are sense pleasures. And there's no denying the fact that we have them. What the Buddha is trying to show is that we're spending our time uselessly searching for more and better ones. Trying to then, having got them, keep keeping them, since we can't do that, repeating them. And that in an untrained person, an unlearned person, he calls it, this is the pri priority and the primary aspect of living, getting as many of the sense pleasures as are available, without, of course, breaking the law or without um, stepping on too many other people's toes, um, taking, keeping it in bounds, most likely, since we are decent people. And yet, within that, we do this. So he's trying to show that the sense pleasures are all there, but we don't have to search for them because they're not going to satisfy us. So with that in mind, there's also a teaching, and it was also happening in the Buddhist time, which is quite interesting, because it's a long time ago, it's two and a half thousand years ago, and yet the teachings at that time were also many that the Buddha denied as being proper teaching. There was also a teaching at that time which said, that if one has enough sense pleasures and repeats them often enough, one's going to get tired of them. I dare say you've heard of that too. It's very popular. And because it's, of course, it has to be popular. But the Buddha said, nonsense. It's the other way around. The more one gets habituated to them, to the initial sense pleasure, the more one craves it. And the craving then becomes an obsession. It's no longer a choice. And this is why that kind of craving is called obsessional craving. It's the obsessional craving which all of us are also are subject to, although we don't do it to the extent where it becomes dangerous for our well-being or hazardous for other people. There is an obsession in us, and you need to inquire into it and find that. The obsession of getting that which is pleasant, no matter what it is, with all the senses. So this obsessional craving has this um, pathway where we can sometimes try to get along without certain things which we are taking for granted and see whether it's all right. It doesn't have to be the way we've got it figured out that we have to have and need and must get. In an affluent society, this obsessional craving gets very easily out of hand. One can see that in clothing, in houses, in all sorts of things. When it goes a little bit beyond the boundaries of necessity, it starts getting out of hand because there's no end. There's no limit. 
there is a limit for us that we can't negate. We have to eat and drink. We have to sleep and we have to have clothing and we have to have a roof over our head and medicine when we're sick. Buddha calls those the requisites. They're required. How much clothing? How much food? Well, there it comes in the realm of what is necessary and what is not. And this is not a very easy thing to find out because our society is geared towards that which is far beyond the necessities. Otherwise, they claim the economy won't run. Now, when we don't ever investigate our own search and our own craving for sense pleasures, then we, of course, have an unmitigated view that this is the way it ought to be. The usual sentence is, why shouldn't I have it pleasant if I can afford it? Well, what can one say? <laughs> What's there to be said to that question? Nothing. <laughs> has nothing at all, because it's a view that justifies sense pleasures. And when one has strong views and opinions, then there is no opening to change that. So if that's one's attitude, that's it, finished. Usually, if one has had that attitude, and it's not unlikely that, one, that we've all had it when we were younger, because it's something that very easily comes to us, that kind of attitude is very easily broken when real dukkha arises. We've had it so pleasant, and all of a sudden it's so unpleasant. What happened? I haven't done anything. We always think, you know, I'm a very nice person, so what happened? Why is it so unpleasant all of a sudden? And then, according to the size of the unpleasantness, the size of the view might be reduced. So that is why Dukkha is our best teacher. Nobody better. It's really the one that can get one onto the path and give one a great deal of insight. The pleasant feelings, and I said already that there are only three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So the pleasant feelings are, so to say, the bait. And we're always snapping for it, like a fish in water where the bait is on the uh, line and it's going to be caught. Now, there's an interesting simile given by the Buddha for this. Uh, attitude that we have because this bait of the pleasant feeling is that what keeps us in the round of samsara the round of samsara which keeps going if you don't want to think of life after life just think of day after day and then examine each moment carefully and see is it some dukkha or am I totally at peace and at ease from morning to night? 
If the answer is, I'm not totally at ease and at peace from morning to night, that is the dukkha of the round of samsara, day after day. So that pleasant feeling is the constant bait. And the simile the Buddha gave was this. In Asia, there is um, a trap for monkeys. And it's usually made out of branches. And <clears throat> it has a small funnel-like in the front and then a larger round end. And what happens is that the hunter will put some sweet in the round end because monkeys love sweets. So then the monkey will come and stick his paw in and get the sweet and grab it. And then he can't get his paw out anymore because with the sweet in it, it's too large to go through the funnel. All he has to do is open his paw and let the sweet fall, and he'd be free. Never thinks of it. Naturally, he's a monkey. What about us? Same thing. We never think of it. Let the sweet fall, and we're free. Because this is the doorway in the round of samsara from feeling to craving that pleasant feeling which we get over and over again brings with it the hanging on the craving to have and to keep the craving to repeat and on that round that's pictured there on that picture that particular point between the feeling and the craving is our doorway. There we can get out. We don't do it. So it's very useful in the quiet of a meditation retreat to become aware when you get a pleasant feeling whether you want to keep it or repeat it. Try it with food. Try it with sight views. Try it with anything that will create a pleasant feeling. Do you want to keep it? Do you want to renew it? If the answer is yes, you're back in the round of samsara. If the pleasant feeling can just be a pleasant feeling and nothing else, that is the first step to freedom, letting the sweet fall can't eat it anyway. He's got his paw in there and his mouth is outside of the trap. And he's trapped and will be killed by the hunter. So if you can use some of your contemplation time to become aware of that, because only the experiential knowledge will bring insight. What I'm telling you is nothing but information. Naturally, we need that because we don't have that available otherwise. But it's only information. And our heads are full of information of another kind. So the only way that insight will arise is if you have that experiential happening. Yes, you can say then, that's what this monkey should have done. Let it drop. Now, the Buddha gives, in this particular discourse, a very interesting list 
of nine steps which happen to us in response to our craving. Now, not the craving necessarily only to be, which is also part of it, but also the craving for the sense pleasures. So they're bound up with each other. And you must never think that the opposite of craving to be is the craving not to be. Don't ever think that. It's very interesting. In the spiritual teaching, the opposite of that which is unwholesome is never the denial of that. It's always the affirmation of something entirely different. So the craving to be is not opposed by craving not to be. They're both the same thing. They're both based on the ego illusion. The craving to be is opposed by insight. That's the first step on that round of samsara, the ignorance one, which, so to say, starts it all, although in a circle you can't say that there's a starting point. But in any case, the opposite of craving to be is inside wisdom, the opposite of the ignorance. But here, these nine steps are based on our craving to be and on our craving for sensual pleasures because they're bound up with each other. As long as we think that we are somebody, we also want to stick around because we're the only somebody that we've got and we also want our pleasure, naturally. And with both of those together, we're constantly having the opposite happening to us. We're constantly getting displeasure. And if we try to work it out on a worldly basis, we'll never work it out. So here we have the first thing that happens is we have pursuit. In other words, that what we think is a very nice thing to have, a lovely sense object that we pursue. We run after it. We do something about it. We spend time and energy and money and thought and all sorts of um, um, desires so that this pursuit should be successful. And you will see in a minute <clears throat> that this does not just concern each one of us as an individual, but that this is mankind at large, all of them, everybody. And because it doesn't work, that's why humanity does not have found a working model and never will until we all become enlightened all at the same time which will never happen now with pursuit we get gain we get it if one makes up one's mind to get something it's very likely that one is going to get it because the mind is in charge and one uses one's body in order to help that pursuit. One uses all one's assets, whatever one's got, to get. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't work. But very often it does. And if one's trying to get something that obviously isn't available, one very often changes one's tracks and takes second best, just in order to get something. So we have gain. Now with that comes as a next step 
decision-making. We decide in our own mind what is valuable about all the things that we've got, what is valuable and what isn't, what is mine and what is yours, what I'm going to keep and what I might be able to discard. So we have a lot of thought processes about all this stuff, and I think that's about the best word for it, that we own. And this is really directed towards objects. Now, obviously, the same applies to people. We want to get people, and we also decide whether they're valuable to keep or not. And sometimes we decide, no, we don't want them anymore. So that also happens. But it is that whole aspect of gaining and getting. And the decision-making also involves a kind of an interpretation of what happiness means. How am I going to be happy? And if one hasn't quite seen through all the worldly aspects, one obviously thinks that the world has something that one could make one happy. It may have a person in it, which one absolutely has to have in order to be happy, or it may have a person in it one absolutely has to get rid of in order to be happy, or it may have objects in it one obviously has to have in order to be happy or to get rid of. It may have uh, places in it that one has to have in order to be happy or has to live or whatever it may be. One has all sorts of ideas. And since when one has start, tried one of each, one still isn't absolutely happy, one has, of course, still some years left to change all that. Change one's uh, people, objects, places to live, one's uh, uh, livelihood. One can change all of those and try something else. Some people do that seven or eight times. By that time, they're fairly old, of course. And if they still haven't figured out that it isn't that, they'll be very unhappy people. So after two or three times of having changed everything around, one should be intelligent enough to see that isn't it either. But that's decision-making, how to be happy, how to use all the stuff that the world provides in order to find happiness. Now, I think that from the sentence alone you can hear the absurdity of it. How can the things that the world provide bring happiness? Happiness is an inner condition, and the things that the world provides is an outer condition. How can the two stick together? They are so far apart that they hardly ever have even a connection. The only thing that we can say about the things in the world is that they arouse pleasant or unpleasant feelings, or sometimes neutral ones. And that's about all we can say about them. Now, with people, it's not much different. There's an emotional content which is supposed to spell security, safety, uh, support system, and all the rest of it. But again, we are faced with something which is totally unreliable and comes from outside instead of from inside. Because safety, security, and the support system, when it comes from inside of us, then it's reliable, because that we've got. 
So this decision-making is a very important factor in our lives. And having made one decision, we change it and make another, which is quite natural, because we do change our minds. And it has basically this at the bottom of it. How am I going to be happy? How am I going to figure this out? And of course, having seen that the world doesn't provide it, then we start meditating, which is fine. And it doesn't really matter why one comes to meditation. The main thing is one comes. The only thing is that one then also has to realize it's not just that which is going to bring real happiness and peace. There has to be more to it than that. So meditation is not just an added factor to everything we've got anyway. It's got to change our inner perception so, so dramatically that the whole perspective looks completely different. And this is what this sutta is trying to do. And I have, that's what I'm trying to um, explain in the way I possibly can. So after decision-making, after we've decided what's going on and what we're going to do about it, we have some things which we think are desirable. So desire and lust arises. Desire is the weak part. Lust is the strong part. Lust is the one where the passion is so strong that we can't see anything except the object that we're desiring. And if we are thwarted in our getting it, we can't see anything except the loss. That's in the strength. Then the Buddha uses the word lust. The word desire itself, which is actually in Pali the same word as craving, is a milder aspect of it. And because of our decision, what will bring us happiness, how we're going to live, we have our direction sorted out. These are the things and the people I want, and these are the things and the people I don't want. So we are actually constantly judge and jury, self-appointed, unpaid. And by that, we already know that it's totally useless. Who has any ability to be judge and jury of everything and everyone that we come in contact with? We don't even know ourselves, never mind others. Desire and lust is the next step. And it would be enough if we just had the desire because the decision has created that desire for what is valuable, but the lust makes it even worse. It's that one-pointedness of wanting, where we are convinced that only that is going to make us happy. And with that, of course, comes attachment. If we get it, we hang on to it, grab it, and keep it. And with that attachment, we have, of course, fear. The fear of loss. And the fear is very unpleasant. Everybody knows that fear is unpleasant. And people have all sorts of names for fear. Fear of the dark, fear of snakes, fear of spiders, fear of men, fear of women, fear of war, fear of atomic bomb. Uh, anything will do. Basically, it's a fear of loss. And here again, we've got both aspects. We are afraid to lose the being that we think we are, 
which is then against our craving to be, and we're also afraid to lose that which we think gives us sensual pleasure. So we have both uh, our fears, and therefore we are attached. What were we attached to? The person we are, body, the me, this what we identify with, and we are attached to what we think we own. Somebody comes and steals everything out of our house, it's a disaster, unless we are highly insured. And this comes later, this business about insuring everything. And if somebody comes along, takes our wife or husband away, it's a disaster, it's a tragedy. It's, um, that's what we are attached to. If something, somebody comes, our doctor comes and tells us we are terminally ill, it's a disaster because we want to keep this person. Why it should be a disaster, nobody has yet figured out. But I think people are starting to think about it a little more rationally. If birth is not a disaster, why is death a disaster? In fact, birth is a much greater disaster. But that will take a little while to that gets into people's minds. That's a bit, uh, maybe too far gone. So attachment is our call for fear. And as long as we live with fear, life can't be extremely pleasant. And that's why it isn't. Because we're also not only afraid to lose life and to lose what we own, we're also afraid to lose the appreciation, the esteem, the love, the care from other people. If they don't give that to us, we think that we have lost something. That this entirely the other person's affair has nothing to do with us, probably hasn't entered our minds yet. If we take a good look at karma, it may enter our minds. What other people do, it's their karma. It's their idea. So with that attachment and that fear, we have both in our lives. We have the pulling towards keeping and the fear of losing. Peacefulness is out of the question. There can't be any peace in that. And then we wonder. And because we haven't looked at it from that standpoint, we of course naturally we think it's the neighbor's fault. It must be somebody's fault. So it could be the economy, it could be the partner, it could be the job, it could be the health, it could be anything. But we haven't really seen that any fear which arises is only can only be due to loss, to that fear of loss. And why are we fearing loss? Because we are hanging on hanging on for dear life. And that's a perfectly valid expression. It says everything. <coughs> so this attachment makes life extremely uncomfortable. We're also attached to our views, of course. Views and opinions. I've mentioned them many times, and they are mentioned by the Buddha over and over again. They're about the worst thing we've got. Views and opinions. We've got views and opinions on how other people should behave. That's our first 
number one, how others should behave. We also have views and opinions how they should behave towards us. That's very important. Then we have views and opinions what they should look like. And also views and opinions is if they look in a certain way that that's what they are then. You know, long white flowing robes and the long beard and that type of thing. Or other ideas, whatever. Green hair and, and short leather pants or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> views and opinions. So then with those views and opinions, we of course have a great attachment to them because we identify with them. That's me. I know because I have that kind of view. What do I know? All I know is what I'd like to have. That's all I know. I don't really know anything else. But people don't admit that. In fact, they preach that sort of thing from the university lectures uh, uh, tables and they preach it everywhere where you hear people talk. They talk about their own views and opinions. And then if somebody believes them, then it's great, wonderful. They've got a following. These are the worst thing that we're attached to because it also <coughs> makes our identification more solid because we know these views and opinions, so there are some, we are actually somebody. We've got to be somebody because we have all these thoughts. Now, with that difficulty of attachment, we have the next step, possessiveness. We own. And the worst thing that we own, well, I don't know whether which one is worse, other people or ourselves. The one that's most unpleasant is, of course, when we own other people. My wife, my husband, my partner, my son, my daughter, my, my, my. We own them. And some of them that we own in our mind so much that we think that they need to comply with our views. And then we have all these lovely and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> now, this possessiveness is not only people. It's our bodies. We think we possess that. We own it. And that brings an awful lot of problems with it. Because the body has a life of its own. Decay, disease and death. And we don't like that. Because it is mine and this is me. And getting older, it's not getting any prettier. And it's not getting any uh, more, uh, any stronger. So it can do less. And then it starts hurting. And then it's getting to be very tired. And it's all things that this my body shouldn't be doing. But it's doing it. So somewhere along the line, there's a mistake in thinking. If it was really mine, why doesn't it obey? Why doesn't it stay young and pretty and never hurts and strong and never gets tired? Why doesn't it do all those things? So it doesn't. So there's an identification process happening with this possessing this body which doesn't work out for anyone. Sometimes we can go along for a while and the body 
seems to do what it's supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden it starts falling apart again. And then, of course, we've caught something, caught a virus or something. Or then we shouldn't be sitting so long because the knees can't handle it. Whatever it may be, we don't realize that all we're looking at is a phenomena consisting of the four elements which is nourished by food and consisting of 32 parts. Now, if you've been taking your body apart, you might like to count them sometime, but you found 32 parts. Actually, I found more. But the Buddha called it the 32 parts of the body. That's the official name for that meditation. I can assure you he did not talk about the zipper in front. <laughs> but I, I think that that is a, a modern addition which might make it a little more accessible. So this possession of our bodies, the possession of our minds, of course, and the possession of other people and the possession of things. And the possession of things is also a great difficulty because it leads to the next step, stinginess, keeping things. They're mine, so I'm going to keep it. It might come in handy. And the messes that occurs, oh my God. But far worse than that, I'm going to need it. I have to have it for my old age. Um, I have to be secure and sure. So I can hand out a little bit, but I've got to have the rest. Stinginess is considered by the Buddha one of the worst character qualities that one could possibly have. And the reason for that is that one keeps everything to oneself that one becomes so um, enmeshed in just oneself that one has, not a, has no chance of feeling this unity of being. And the unity of being helps us, of course, to flow. To flow with everything that exists. And fear is much lessened. Because if we are willing to let go and give, then we don't have to be so afraid that we're going to lose it. With stinginess, we're terribly afraid. So that the next step is an obvious one, namely safeguarding. So with safeguarding, we come to this wonderful fact of ensuring our possessions, ensuring our life, which actually gets paid out at death or something. So it's nice for the heirs. Insurance, policy, uh, insurance uh, companies usually have the largest buildings in any city, which doesn't say anything other than everybody is scared. We want to insure. Insure with an insurance company, with people that are just as scared as we are, and which are putting a value on our life, a monetary value for which we pay, or a monetary value on our belongings for which we pay in case somebody runs off with them, or they burn 
gets get destroyed by fire or by water, or sometimes they insure you against earthquakes. Nobody can insure one against an earthquake. It's totally impossible. All one can have is a repayment of the thing's value as they were when they got swallowed up by the earth, which means they were very old and broken down, and the insurance company is delighted to pay the least possible value. So we insure and insure and insure things and ourselves and houses and all the stuff in them and around them. And what do we get? Nothing. Payments every month. That's all we get. <laughs> we don't get a thing. Because if they should all burn down, unless we've been into insurance fraud, if they all burn down or get all um, flooded or they get taken away by an earthquake, we never get back what we had because we have a personal investment in our things. They are mine. They are mine and they are... There's something in them that makes me feel as if we buy big dogs that might bark if somebody comes and we lock our windows and we're afraid if we think of it. And in the big cities, there's a lot of that going on that we could be afraid of. Not only are we afraid for the things that we have stored in the house, and usually we even... If we have real valuables, we don't even keep them. We take them to the bank in the vault where we ne neither we nor anybody else can see them. <laughs> and then they're safe. <coughs> and then we feel all right. Then we feel fine. But we never get to see the stuff. And in the big cities, a lot of uh, um, stealing and uh, robbery goes on and we are not only afraid for the things, but we're also afraid for our lives. We're afraid for our safety. We're constantly something that could happen if we put our minds on that, and most people do. This safeguarding is, of course, uh, not d designed to be successful because there's always somebody against that. If we are successful with it, and really don't lose any of our belongings, we're guaranteed to lose our life. And then all these belongings really don't matter. So it would be very useful if we were to look at it that way. But something else the Buddha said, which is the ninth step of all this, is that from all that come quarrels, insults, and wars. And that our whole social system cannot work because these are the attributes of the people in the social system, in the marketplace. And the marketplace contains police because people steal, because people murder. Why do we have police? Because this is what people do. So we have to have them. We have armies, navies and air force. Why? Are they playing with the guns or are they getting ready for the next one? Why? Because of that whole aspect which I have just delineated.
that whole aspect which is in everybody's heart. Some of those nine steps may be less or more. All of them are in everybody who hasn't seen absolute truth. And this is how our whole social system on this globe does not work. So he shows in this aspect our own difficulty, naturally. It always comes back to oneself. That's where the experiential experience can come in. We can check that out and see, is it really so? Or did he make that up? The Buddha was not one to deal with imagination. He said the world's full of imagination. He was one to go down to the underlying cause, which is the arising, the underlying causes. And seeing us, ourselves, in that way does not include blaming ourselves. There's no blame in all this. Insight does not contain blame. Blame is a negative way of looking at oneself. We're already negative enough. We don't have to add to it. What it contains is recognition. If we can see ourselves clearly, we can say, yes, this is what I do. And does it bring any good results? That's the only question that is really worthwhile asking. Because letting go of all that, that takes practice. That takes inner work. And that's what meditation is for. Meditation is not designed just to have pleasant feelings and emotions. That's only a pathway. Those are only steps. Those are only means. Meditation can change our inner awareness must change our inner awareness to the point where we realize this as being the absurdity of human nature. And when we see the absurdity of it, hopefully we'll have a nice smile on our faces and say, well, I've finally seen it. And we'll think it's funny, which is what it is. It's sad too, of course, because it will always be part of human nature. Because human nature is that way. But when we see the truth of it, we can smile at ourselves. See, it took a long time, but I've finally seen it. The social implications of this are the truth of what is happening in our marketplace. This is why we have one. We want to pursue that what brings us supposedly pleasure. We want to have gain. And we decide which way we're going to get this gain, thinking it's going to make us happy, hoping it's going to make us happy, deciding again and again something a little different so that we get a little differently happy. doesn't work, but anyway, we try, keep on trying. And then, having decided all that, the desire to keep the stuff, to keep ourselves, arises. It's all happening in the marketplace, day in and day out, wherever we go, whether it is in a little corner shop, whether it is in the uh, multinational corporations, whether it's in one's own home, wherever it is, it's always that. And because of that, because it isn't 
based on oneness, unity, generosity, lovingness. It isn't based on letting go, but it's based on getting. Therefore, it can't work. Everybody wants to get. Nobody wants to let go. So when we are become meditators, the central theme is letting go. We can only meditate if we let go. We let go not only of our thought processes, which is obvious, of course, but in order to do that, we have to let go of, I want to get something. Maybe I want to get happiness, I want to get bliss, I want to get whatever it is, what I've heard about. If I have a mind that says I want to get, we're lost already. But not only that, it has to be even more than that. As long as we want to support the I thought, the me thought, we can't meditate either. That's got to go too. So it's a letting go, which is a central theme, and the, the inner reality. But the letting go has to be based on realizing that what we're hanging on to, what we're possessing and what we are attached to, what we're safeguarding is not making us happy. It can't, because it isn't anything that has the connection to our inner being. It's all outside of us, including this body. Inner being is happening within. So when that realization happens, then letting go becomes a possibility and an opportunity and a challenge. So meditation can do that for us if we approach it in the right way. The Buddha once said, the Dhamma is like a snake, and his teaching is like a snake. If you grab it by the tail, it will bite you. If you grab it behind the head, totally safe. And it's quite beautiful. You don't have so many snakes in this country. I've got millions of it in Australia. So um, we have to approach this from the right standpoint. Because if we approach meditation as something extra to get and identify ourselves with I am a meditator or I belong to the Sangha or whatever else, that's enough. Um, that doesn't do the slightest bit of good. That's another new identification process. Something else I'm getting attached to, something else I'm possessing, something else I'm going to have to safeguard. Don't let anybody think I am not a meditator. Don't let anybody think I don't belong to this Sangha. I've got to make sure they think it properly. What possible use can that be? So not to approach meditation from that standpoint, but to approach it from the standpoint of the absolute truth, which is available to us. We can all find it, particularly since we've already started to meditate and listen to the Buddha's words.
the people do try to change societies, have revolutions, throw out the Tsar and make it all communist, throw out the Communist Party and divide it up into little uh, counties or states, um, throw out the uh, Republicans and elect the Democrats, um, anything, anything in order to have a change doesn't work. It can't. The only thing that could possibly work under those circumstances is sometimes a little more personal freedom for the people who live in certain places. But happiness and peace are not available on that level because that's only available within ourselves. If we give up those nine steps of pursuit then there's happiness and peace. So peace is something that is absolutely foreign to a society of human beings. But it can be achieved by individuals. A society of human beings hasn't got a hope. And if we look at this century, which is almost gone, we can see that particularly since the end of the Second World War, we've had wars constantly. In fact, I have read that since 1945, we've had 86 wars. Interesting, isn't it? It's not even 50 years. 86 wars. And that's the way we live. And if we don't have wars where people shoot each other, which we, of course, manage also, we have wars in here. I want and I don't want. I want to get and I don't want to get. And then we don't have only wars in here, then we have wars with the people that we live with. We quarrel. You want that, but I want this. Why do you want it? I want it. And so on. Because of our ninth step of pursuit. It's so simple. It all makes so much sense. But what isn't simple is to actually change one's whole habituated desire system within into a letting go system. That is not easy. The explanation is simple, but it's not easy to do. But since the easy things in life don't usually produce the greatest good, we might as well resign ourselves to the fact that we have to practice something that's a little difficult. Little is maybe exaggerated, which is difficult. <laughs> so we can actually say with conviction that craving is at the root of suffering, which is anyway the second noble truth. And the Buddha divides it up into two kinds of craving, which all boil down to the same thing in the end. But in order to make it more understandable, first of all, the craving for being, which brings about our rebirth, which you can use in every morning. And then we have this um, possessive craving. And that is the one that constantly gets us into strife. But it's exactly the same craving. It's just viewed from two different angles. One is viewed from the angle of 
I want to be, and the other one is viewed from the angle I want to have. That's all. I want to be and I want to have. If you find a person on this globe that doesn't want to be and doesn't want to have, you've found a rare jewel. But not wanting to be doesn't mean suicide. It just means things as they are. So this is human nature and the cause for every problem, the smallest and the largest. It's a very interesting exposition of the Buddha of putting human nature into nine steps and showing how that makes everything that happens in the world arise. And since we are the world, we are helping it along. We are doing it. We must never think that it's them out there doing it. It's a very easy escape system. It's them. You know, it's the Arabs that are having a war, or it's the Israelis that are shooting, or whatever we're thinking. No, it's us. It's us that are on those ninth step of pursuit of four possession. And that's the obsessional craving, that's the craving for the pleasure, and the other one is the craving to be. Both of them are actually the same thing, but it is helpful to divide it up into those two because then you can examine them better. And that's what I'd like to urge you to do to examine this. Is it true? One of the very fascinating aspects of the Buddhist uh, teaching is the fact that he constantly urged his listeners not to believe what he said, but to investigate it and find out whether it's true. Because he knew very well, he must have been an absolutely brilliant mind, he knew very well that when you believe, you still don't change. But when you notice that these things hurt you, then one changes. So investigate and see whether this is true, whether it's true in the past or today. And then think about it. How do I change that? Which is the hardest part of it. So that might be enough for one evening. If any questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes? So how do I change <laughs> Okay, that is of course the most important question. Um, quickly said, through insight, when through all the different methods which I have already explained, like elements and uh, 32 parts of the body and the four parts of the mind, yeah, the four aggregates of the mind, and through the seeing of impermanence, through all these different seeing of dukkha, there is already that approach given, and that approach is sort of like walking towards something. That's approach. So we approach that whole edifice of the me. And when we use those kind of approaches, we can see that the edifice of me is a house of cards. All you have to do 
is blow just have one breath go and it's gone all is elements and parts all is aggregates all is impermanent there's nobody there that makes the craving totally irrelevant what for okay so now which that would entail the absolute understanding of the delusion of self and it would probably not be enough not, absolutely not be enough uh, to just understand it because the craving does arise because the feeling isn't there you see we do understand a lot of stuff but we don't feel it so maybe it is already understood that there isn't anybody there i mean i've said it often enough maybe that's enough you know <laughs> and i've written it and the buddha has said it, and the buddha has written it so maybe that is already enough so okay there's nobody there but if one doesn't feel it the craving does arise but then the intelligent mind can see again this craving that's arising is bringing me at least discomfort do i really have to have discomfort couldn't i be my own best friend and not create discomfort for myself couldn't i let go instead and see whether that's comfort so this kind of approach means that the understanding is there and in spite of it the craving arises but we do not go into the craving but see it for what it is and let it go which is not a suppression but a substitution the substitution with an understanding of the craving's negative quality so can try <laughs> okay what else what you're saying perhaps is that this other side is also lurking there and we just have to get into the position and it will the other side of inside is also there is that what you mean yes yes, yes. well you've been put into that position that's what you're sitting here for the body doesn't get enlightened it's a mind that gets enlightened it can't tell it to do what it can't do for example even i've been working on that thing that you suggested to diminish pain yeah sure you know, 
Yeah, but you can't look at it from the body standpoint. The Buddha said, the unenlightened person has two darts, two arrows that poke him, and the enlightened one has one. The two darts are mind and body, and for the one dart, for the enlightened one, it's the body. The Buddha also got sick. The Buddha was on his deathbed, but his mind was clear. He went into the eight jhanas, down to the first and died between fourth and fifth. Forget the body. Leave it alone. Use the mind. Enlightenment is in the mind. And you have put yourself in the position of the opposite. You have put yourself in the position where, in a meditation course, this is the uh, recurring theme. So whether one becomes enlightened from that or not, that's the second question, but at least one is in a position. Well, of course it just happens, because these nine steps are in everybody's heart. <laughs> That's why it happens. <laughs> There's also that people are not af uh, aware of their immense fear of death until they're confronted with a uh, life-threatening situation. And then, all of a sudden, they know that this fear is there. The, there's a um, nice story about that. I'll tell you the story. About a monk in the Buddha's time. He was an elderly monk, and he thought he was enlightened. And he lived in a huge cave, a very nice cave. And uh, he had a disciple, a young monk, and he lived with him and, uh, you know, looked after him. And after the young monk had lived with him, for five years, it's usually the custom, after five years being with the teacher, that the teacher says, now you go and visit other teachers and see if there's something else that you can learn. So he said that after five years to the young monk, and he wandered off. And as he wandered off and wandered through the uh, uh, India, he went to this teacher and that teacher, and after about two years, he became enlightened, the young monk. And then he put his mind to see the old teacher in the cave. And he saw that this old teacher in the cave wasn't enlightened. With his enlightened mind, he could tell. So he quickly went back and thought, I need to help this old teacher of mine, which is the first priority in this spiritual tradition that one helps one's teacher. So he came back and uh, didn't quite know how to approach this. I mean, couldn't quite say to the old teacher, say, well, you know, you're not enlightened or something like that. So he thought of a device. And he said to the teacher after they'd greeted each other and were told how nice it was to see him again, he said to the old teacher, can you make a vision appear? And the old teacher said, well, of course I can. So the young monk said, uh, well, I would like to see a huge male elephant here right in our cave here. No, the teacher said, sure, here you are, huge male elephant. And the young monk said, and can you make this huge elephant that we have here in the cave, can you make it move too? And the teacher said, well, sure I can. What do you want it to do? He said, I want it to attack you. And that moment, 
the old teacher knew he wasn't enlightened. And then he said to the young one, he said, uh, okay, you show me the way to enlightenment. And then, presumably, he became enlightened. <laughs> so sometimes we need to be very much confronted with the danger before we actually know how much we cling. And we also need to be confronted <laughs> with, the, with how much we cling to our views. And that often doesn't feel so good. So, anything else? Any question? Yes? The practical difference between suppression and letting go. Um, okay. Yeah. Suppression means that you don't want to become aware of it. You don't want to know it. So you pretend it isn't there. And letting go is you're fully aware of it. But you see its uselessness, whatever it may be, and you drop it. And in the beginning of one's practice, it's not easy to drop because we think we own. So what we need to do in the beginning is to substitute. So we substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. So it is a it is a total awareness because we can't substitute what we're not aware of. So when we when we suppress we don't want to know. That's very dangerous of course. Because if we suppress long enough, it's going to burst wide open. And it's going to be quite a to-do. So something unpleasant around us, I mean, contemplating my own death, unpleasant sensations around us, having recognized them and then substituting this is a different story. Uh, when you have something unpleasant arrive that's unwholesome, the unwholesomeness, but when you have unpleasant sensation from contemplating your own death, then you must realize that this is rejection and resistance. So if you want to substitute with something wholesome, you can only substitute with acceptance. <laughs> okay, that's all we can do, right? <laughs> On the practical level, you'll have to do that. I can only do the theoretical level, right? Okay. Put your attention on the breath for just a few moments, please. Now look into your heart and see whether there are any worries, anxieties. And if so, let them float away. Visualize a warm golden light which contains peace, friendship, joy, 
and let it enter through the top of your head. And fill yourself completely with it. Feel the warm glow of joy, the calm feeling of peace. Think of the person sitting next to you and fill and surround this person with the warm golden light. Fill him or her with peace and joy, with friendship. Now let this warm light flow from one person to the other in this room, connecting each other with peace, with joy. Think of your parents, whether they're alive or not. Send them the warm golden light and fill and surround them with friendship, with respect, with understanding. Let them be your good friends. Think of the people dearest and nearest to you. Let the warm golden light reach out to them and fill them 
with peace, friendship, joy, respect. Give without asking anything in return. Think of the people you meet every day, your neighbors, people in the streets, in shops, people you work with. Fill and surround them with the warm golden light, full of friendship, <coughs> full of joy. full of peace. Think of people who have far more difficulties than we have at this moment. People in countries where there's war, children dying of starvation, people in prisons, hospitals, Send them this warm golden light and fill them with understanding and respect, with peace and friendship. Think of someone whom you don't consider a friend. Someone you've had a problem with. Send this person the warm golden stream of light. knowing that he or she's got the same problems as we all have. So forgive and forget and open your heart towards this person.
fill him or her with your friendship, your understanding. your peace. Now visualize this warm golden light as a mantle above the globe. And let it slowly come down and pervade as many beings as you can picture with peace. with friendship, with joy. Let it purify nature, this warm golden light. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the joy and the peace in your heart. Feel the warmth of joy. Keep it there. Anchor it in your heart. May all beings have peace in their hearts. 